Hey there, welcome to Uppity Women. Today we're talking to Trish Flanagan. Uh, we did have some audio problems. Trish had a, a bit of a bad connection. I did what I could to fix it where I could. Deleted a few things here and there, but nothing super substantive. But before we get there, I'm going to read to you from Trish's LinkedIn page. She just has done so much. Here's what it says. 20 years of disrupting systemic poverty through innovation and education around the globe, led vocational training for itinerant teens in Ireland at age 19, provided advocacy for homeless and immigrant families in San Francisco, empowered young women through basketball on the U.S.-Mexico border, pioneered Sandy Bay Alternative School in the Honduran Bay Islands, created community engagement guidelines for Room to Read's school libraries program in Asia and Africa. She's the co-founder of Pika Solar, an early stage solar energy company, Noble Impact, a social entrepreneurship education initiative, Future School of Fort Smith, a public charter school centered on student voice and real world application, Think Future Foundation, a network of investors, thought leaders, and students creating equitable access for opportunity in public education. So this is our conversation. We kind of jump right in. First, talking about her leaving future school to start the foundation to raise money for the school. And then we'll back up a little bit and start at the beginning. So I thought this was a really fascinating and informative conversation. There's so much I don't know about the education system, about charters, about public schools. And we will be talking to many more, hopefully in the future, about the different aspects of the school system in Arkansas and in the country, because it's just such a huge problem in my mind. And it's something that we have got to work on and we've got to work on it together. So uh, anyway, here is the conversation with Trish. I hope you enjoy it. And don't forget, we've got show notes. So I'll be linking to a few of the things that we're talking about. And you can find Trish on LinkedIn. If you want to learn more about her, I'm sure she'd be happy to talk and also take your money if you want to invest in some innovative ideas and applications in the education system. Good, good. Um, Can't decide if I want to catch up as a friend or as a as an interviewer. Uh, I guess I'll do both. Yeah, good. So I, well, I mean, some some stuff has shifted around. I've um, I'm not in the day to day, you know, operations school anymore. I <clears throat> step back on that role at the end of last semester, and you know, with no roadmap, and I just kind of said I'm resigning, and then that triggered a, a, you know some conversation around you know responding to the things that I'd been kind of noticed. Start that over again because you resigned. Yeah, I stepped out. So, you know, in the world, what we've learned is in the world of startups with the school, a lot of times things have to get to the point where you kind of are forced to make a decision. You just don't have the luxury of having a, you know, a bench of people that pull from like a pipeline of people and split master plans that are fully fleshed out and revisited. You just don't have the bandwidth. You don't have the staff and you just, we just didn't have the time. So, by stepping back from that position, um, that's when it really sort of the organization needed to respond to that. And then what came out of that was great, which is we built our leadership capacity. So, you know, I'm able to function in a more strategic planning role and fundraising role solely for the school at this point. And then we still, you know, have a, a principal now that came on board that we hired. And then a, our original principal is now our superintendent. So we just were able to expand in that way. So that's kind of what I'm doing. So I launched under the name of uh, the Think Future Foundation. So this is another uh, startup in a, in a sense, but it's just me this time. <laughs> wow. Okay. So did you, when you resigned and took that step back, was your intention to kind of force everyone to rethink and, and regroup and kind of re, 
formulate the school? Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, we have a public school board, and the only thing that really different, differentiates us from a, another, a, any other school board is that, you know, it's not public, there are no public elections. But apart from that, the school board still has the same obligations, but so does the superintendent. We all report to the state. And so, you know, as such, there's just, it's just really slow. It's, it's ironic because on the one hand, we're a startup, and then that's on the other end, so you have to be very nimble and quick and responsive to the changing environment and, you know, all the testing that you're doing. But then as a public school, you're beholden to those um, those governing rules for the, for, the, for your board. So it just threw, the, um, the, threw us into high gear on taking action, you know, on getting, a, getting more strategy and more fundraising behind us. I mean, we've been basically living, you know, day to day. For the last four years, and I just said, you know, this is working. I, we always there was never a doubt that it would work, but it's just we're not going to get to the kind of quality that we want and be able to make the impact that we want without without having more, you know, someone you know whose sole responsibility is to fundraise and get that plan moving forward. Right, you certainly can't do that and run a school. Yeah, yeah. a lot. Where did the seed come from for future school? Um, that's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, there's a mechanical answer in terms of how I got to Fort Smith. It's interesting though. I think when, when there's a, a need and, you know, you call it the process of natural evolution or something, but, you know, we've got to move the needle with how we're spending our time and resources, um, of our young people in our publicly funded institutions. And so that's been something that I've been studying and, you know, in the trenches as a teacher, as a case manager, as a caseworker, not only in the U.S., but out, you know, abroad. And that sort of has been my journey um, for the past 15 years. And then I met Steve Clark, who's from Portsmouth, who's an amazing businessman, community leader, philanthropist, and certainly an entrepreneur. So when we met, we launched Noble Impact, and that was our first project together. And then, you know, he had been seeing a need in Fort Smith where um, they really needed some sort of catalyst to open the conversation about what what education should be moving forward, not what we've always done. That's where, when I was finished with my graduate work, he and I, you know, I was kind of putting feelers out into my network, and he responded right away and said, come down and start a school. I, I had a year-long contract to just, you know, I'd never done it before. I'd never, there was, I'd never met anyone that done it before. So, you know, I said, I'll see what I can do. And I moved to Little Rock, literally downloaded the Department of Education um, application for a charter school and started filling in the blanks, as I say. <laughs> wow. And that, that process in that year, um, the first six months, we built a timeline, you know, saying, all right, the letter of intent's due in June, then the final application's due, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I visited 30 schools in eight states around the country and still am visiting schools all the time because education is the second biggest industry in the country, second only to healthcare. So as such, there's tons of sales pitches out there. I just became, you know, I just wasn't buying it. So I needed to go and, and meet students themselves. So that's kind of what I did. And I really met with a lot of people in Fort Smith, kids, business leaders. And it was crazy because everything just lined up. I was seeing, I went and visited schools where students were doing internships, you know, what we're doing, um, what we brought to Fort Smith. And then locally in Fort Smith, you're seeing this major disconnect that's across the country, not only in Arkansas or Fort Smith, but every, in, in so many places where our systems of education are antiquated. And yet we're spending half of our state resources there. 
And at the same time, you know, one of the biggest factors of students not succeeding in school, now there's many that you could cite, but one of the biggest ones is just lack of engagement. You know, the Gates Foundation did a study, um, they moved five interviewed 500 people who never finished school, aka dropouts, and half of them had, um, no, eighty percent of them had a C when they quit school, so a C or above, so they were passing. Half of them said that they were bored. So what is that saying? If, you know, in, in Arkansas, on average, we're spending $10,000 per student. Nationally, we're spending 12000 annually per student, and they're leaving because they're bored. And so in my mind, I'm also juxtapositioning this and comparing this to my experience in Latin America and Asia and Africa and thinking, this is insane. Like we're we're the ones throwing more money at this than anybody else. And yet people are literally opting out of it because they're bored. Well, have you done your own sort of, not formal study, but just kind of informal survey for people who have dropped out in in Arkansas or in Fort Smith? And is is that the reason they give? Because I'll I'll tell you, I'm surprised to hear that that's the major reason, because I would think that it's due to either having to work, teen pregnancy, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, those those social kind of negatives, I guess, that that we Mm -hmm. always hear about. Well, I think it is, it is. But I think what's what's the layer below that is they don't see the value in it. Um, and so if you line up I mean, the two examples that you cited, teen pregnancy and needing to work, well, that's an economic driver. You know, that's a cultural driver. Right? Teen pregnancy could be, but certainly the need to work. I mean, and we see this all the time in my students, in our students, and we do survey them quite often. Um, we haven't done anything targeted towards identifying those needs locally, um, but we certainly could. But, you know, if we paid, if students could get paid to be at school, not only would uh, attendance skyrocket. And that's one of the biggest plagues of public schools is absenteeism. Where schools are failing, it's, it, the kids aren't showing up. And then on top of that, you've got cultural bias all, all throughout, the, from the mm-hmm. curriculum to the, the mode of communication and so on and so forth. So if all these factors just keep lining up to make you feel excluded from this, and then on top of it, and probably the most important piece, you don't see the value. I mean, it's, you know, education we know is an investment, but when you are living in you know, the hierarchy of needs of crisis where you go home and you don't know who's going to be there. Uh, if you're staying there or your grandma's house or whoever else's house, you, you're living in survival mode. And so this long-term goal of, you know, making it to college for a kid that's someone that's 15, that's, that's almost a 10-year commitment before you actually see a tangible return. I think you can distill it down regardless of the actual stated reason in the immediate sense of why someone would leave school. They felt the value in it, you know, and that's kind of going back to your point. I was teaching on the Mexican border in Texas through Teach for America. They sent me down there and, you know, it was a dropout factory, to put it bluntly. Half the students never finished. And we had an almost 100% poverty level, mostly Hispanic, right on literally 10 minutes from Mexico. And I reasoned with my students all the time because I totally understood. Like, they're not bought into it because they're living in a... They're living in the day to day, and we're asking them to make a commitment over that will not, they're not going to steal a tangible result for years, if even then. And so we've, there's got to be an immediate sense of value out of what they're getting. And I think for someone as an adolescent or a young person, it, it starts with I feel like I am learning something. You know, I feel like I'm understanding my world better because I'm in this environment. When we ask our students why they like future school, they'll say, and we have done a lot of surveys around that. Internships, they feel like they're actually preparing for their future. And then they also frequently, it feels like, it feels like a family here. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what's getting them to come to school when kids are so far behind in reading skills and just, I mean, our biggest challenge with our 225 students currently and then in the training our team, our staff is they're, they're shocked. They're shocked at the low levels of motivation and organization. I mean, not even beginning to talk about skills, but just the fundamentals of being able to be a student, you know, are just not there for so many kids. You're saying you see that in the kids at your school? Yeah. It's a lack of motivation, right. Well, how oh, do yeah. these kids get to your school? One of the things I'm most proud of and happy about with the school is the diversity, um, not only culturally, but also where the kids are in life. We've got a student who just got a, a full ride to the Wharton School of Business at Penn State. Wow. Um, yeah, we have, you know, all the way to kids that are, have a probation officer. And so they totally select us. Um, we do a ton of outreach all over the place so that we continue to be diverse. But one of the most common questions that we got when we were in the design stage and then in the research was, well, what kids will you have? And that's really telling, you know, like what kids will you have? What that means is we've designed our schools and our neighborhoods such that they're black or they're white, they're rich or they're poor, and mm-hmm. the list goes on. And so what are we going to get when we expect that? When that's how we design these systems and that's how we that's the message that we're sending to kids is you belong in this school like so you're you know you're in this label so they come to us on their own kids from all over the place we've got some kids now that are moving to Fort Smith to go to the school you know their parents are able to work in Fort Smith so they're just moving there we've got kids coming in from Ozark every day and it's like a 40 minute drive there's uh, you know obviously some going to be some frustration on the part of the existing schools and, and, and individuals there so there has been you know there have been kids that have been counseled that you know rather than like solve the problem with that student in their existing school they counsel them to us there is that like card what, what do you mean what do you mean by that like counsel them student, to you a student that has a history of behavioral issues they'll say oh but you should go to Fort, or you should go to future school because it's smaller and and for all the reasons that we do have that students like in, that do have troubles and other schools do succeed with us, but it's not because we're smaller. It's because of how we how we see the student, you know, as a partner with us. And um, you kind of teach the whole student. Yeah, yeah. There's we're still, you know, one thing, one one variable is that we're still young and we're not a charter management organization like most charter schools are. They have a giant department for research, giant department for funding, and whatnot. We still are learning as we go, but we learn very quickly. We have students coming in for a ton of different reasons, but the vast majority of them, now there are students that it doesn't work for because quite honestly, and we told them, they need to have more structure and punitive measures. They're from a system that has created, you know, a school to prison pipeline, just as the prison system is largely not rehabilitation or learning, it's just punishment. So meaning, if I understand you correctly, you you might get a kid who is in that pipeline, um, is having behavioral issues, they come to future school or try to, and you you make this assessment and say, well, this isn't going to fix your problems? Yeah, well, so one of the big things that's different about us is that every student, to the extent possible, is treated uh, is treated the same. At the same time, though, it's personalized to them. So what I mean by that is we don't just say, okay, the students that are in the top 10% are going to get the attention to get guidance to go to college. We set that expectation for everybody. And the mechanism for us being able to ensure that every student gets support is that every teacher is an advisor to 20 students all the way through high school and they meet every day. So there's an insane amount of of support in our structures. Now, is it exactly how we want it to look? Is every advisor as successful as the next? No. When a student comes to a future school, we have a conversation with them about what it's going to look like, that, that they're going to need to learn a lot of self-direction. They're going to need to learn, they'll be learning how to communicate. 
we do restorative justice. So when there's an issue or a conflict, we go the other direction that most organizations do, which is that we actually bring them all together to talk and we continue that process. So we sit them down. I mean, we have that conversation ongoing with them and most kids really, you'll hear from them that they, they really love the environment. And I know you've got a fairly small sample size so far, but do you find that that, that is more effective, the restorative justice effort? Does it make them feel like they are partners and they actually have some, some autonomy or control? I'm not sure what the right word is. Over, uh, oh gosh, where's the word? Um, you know, like will. Uh, yeah, what's happening in their life. Yeah, yeah. they've got some say. Uh, yeah. Right. So agency is a huge, you know, thing for us is that we, the students, you know, and then we tell them all the time, outside of these walls, you know, there's going to be a lot of forces that you can't control, whether it's your parents, how society sees you, whether it's good or bad or whatever. And so when you come here, this is where you are in the driver's seat um, of what happens to you. What we've found is when kids, you know, from our, our own experiences as educators in traditional systems, and this isn't to dog traditional systems, I just think that all the pressures and constraints that you're under in a public school it's very difficult to, unless you're intentional about it and you're so, and you got, you know, you open for this reason, but it's to prioritize student voice because of all the constraints that you're under and the demands. And so that, that really um, resonates with students. They're learning communication. I look at adults, I mean, I look at myself. I mean, I could have been well with a lot of this, um, like, how do I communicate when someone's frustrating me? How do I have developed better communication skills? And so the kids are learning that at 15. We're just basically moving these things that ultimately we come to, whether it's in retirement or in grad school or whatever, of the things that, that the tools that you need to be well-rounded, be, can, you know, make contribution to your community, and then certainly to, like, like you said, feel a sense of agency and, and autonomy in your life. I fully believe that youth is wasted on the young. And I know when I was in school, I just could not get out fast enough. I didn't really care about my grades. I wasn't thinking about college. I was thinking about moving to New York or, you know, yeah. being independent, not having to answer to anybody. And so I didn't really have anyone sort of pushing me one way or another to do things. And there are times I, I mean, I've had a really great fun life. So I'm not, I don't regret, but. You know, I do wish that I weren't 47 and still trying to figure it out. You know, I wish that maybe someone had directed me a little bit and said, well, here's here's how you might think about this. But I also understand that as a young person, it is just so hard to see the impact of your current behavior right. on your future. If you find that magic bullet, I hope you'll let us all know. Well, you know, I think, you know, you know it's a mentor, right? I mean, this right. is what happens in the business community all the time. I mean, that's what sounds like a lot of what your organization is doing as well. And that's what every student gets. So everyone through the internship program, that's required for every student, which means that they design their own internship based on what they're interested in. And a lot of them don't have a clue. They say whatever the professions are that they know in their neighborhood. The second thing that's super exciting for me and, and, and very inspiring is that, and this comes from my roots, you know, in social work and, and social justice work is the inequity, you know, is yes, if we just look at the, um, the symptoms of it, you know, the poverty, the hunger, these horribly hard, difficult things to deal with if you're in that environment. What's the root of it, though, is you don't have access to opportunity. And a lot of that's coming from you're born into it. And you've mm-hmm. got a network. I mean, I was middle, I'm a middle class kid from St. Louis. And it wasn't if I'd go to college, it was where. I was just talking to someone the other day. Was a, a man from Haiti, same thing. He said, you know, all around me, I was a poor neighborhood. But my parents knew people who had traveled, who had done these other things. And so that network is just absolutely essential 
if you look at anyone that's like transforming or creating their, you know, or leading or contributing to their, their communities and, the, and society, they have people around them that they can, that can advise them, that can open doors for them, et cetera. If you aren't born into that, it's really hard to get it. Mm-hmm. And that's really what that model, that, that's really what one of the benefits that, that we see is happening, um, you know, is that mentoring through the, through the internship program. And the other thing too is, you know, with the economy as it is and the time that we're living in, it's really hard to predict what 10 years looks like in terms of the workforce demands and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's AI, you know, are we all going to be, you know, is it going to rob robots? I mean, there's a lot of thoughts out there. And so what we tell the students is this, you build a toolbox. I have an MBA, but before, you know, but I've been a waitress, I set tile, I've been a teacher. And I think there's a real sense of entrepreneurship in what we're doing. And that with that comes a sense of agency and, you know, independence from, you know, being what I think a lot of times if you are living in poverty, tends to feel like you're just a victim to whatever forces are around you. Somebody here said as a segue to shift into the traditional public schools. I hear a lot of people say they want government to be run like a business. The schools suck. You know, I, I'm in Little Rock, so that's all I hear about is Little Rock mm-hmm. School District right now. And I, mm-hmm. I have a bias against charters, not the idea of charters, but the way that they're being used, at least from my perception. So, and this idea of being able to, you know, turn on a dime and be innovative and meet new challenges and, you know, I don't know, teach computer skills and, you know, mm-hmm. in school, technology, AI, all those things. Is there a way? What is keeping the traditional public schools from doing this? Well, I, I totally hear. And, you know, it's funny because when I first started this conversation about starting a school, I ran into a lot of friends of mine that felt they were opposed to charters. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So one of the things that I love about what we've learned and the position, you know, the position that I'm in uh, is to speak about that very problem. So just to give a direct example, in the over 150 page application we submitted to the Board of Education for the charter, there's not now charters when they started in the 90s, you know, the intention was to be a laboratory for innovation for the bigger systems. And that's great in concept. Now, what's happened at the legislative and the political level, from what I can tell, and I'm not an expert and I haven't done, you know, my full due diligence, but just from my own experience, there's no requirement to demonstrate how you're actually going to form and collaborate with the other schools. So, like, what I think needs to happen is that charter schools need to, there need to be some, well, first of all, I think that you don't need charter schools. I think that what I've seen is people get very territorial about how they think it should be done, how education should look. You know, education is also playing, you know, sort of a landmine of political divisiveness. You know, you're Mm -hmm. going to talk about evolution. No, you're not. You're going to talk about gay rights. No, you're not. You know, all these kinds of things. And we've experienced ourselves. And so people kind of are vying for that power. They as uh, you know, very powerful in that way. I think there's just a lot of territorialism in schools and school districts that I've seen. You don't see as much collaboration. Uh, we set out to be collaborative, but I don't think that charters even really need to exist. I think that school districts and, and school systems, period, need to have a research and development budget. Like any successful, innovative organization, they have money and resources and intentions set aside so that they are always testing and figuring out what's next. And it can be their own lab. Right. But what happened, you know, so cool when I visited all those schools, I was trying to prove that we didn't need to start our own school because it's an insane amount of work and it's very, you know, it's a parallel system. You know, it's more resources. It's duplicating resources to a certain extent. But that the number one uh, overall just resounding 
comments I got from school leaders where they were actually, you know, you could tell that the students were learning and they were engaged. Every single one of them said, you have to start your own system because they tried within schools. Now, so there's like tons of examples where school, like magnet schools is an example. Now that's, you know, that's where a school district creates some like sort of specialty school within their own district. But there you have the problem of segregation. You have to have a certain grade point average usually. I mean, usually it's the kids that are that already started down the path of failure that don't ever get a chance to go to those magnet schools place. But um, then you see like schools within schools. So where schools will try to like just have like a floor of innovation, like or the 10th grade is going to do this or these 20 pilot things. What happens is the what, what I was told and what I've seen is the established culture over time, the established culture takes over and then they just don't succeed. Because the established culture is always going to go to what it knows. Yeah. And that's the way they've been doing it. Mm-hmm. So really, it's truly a political problem, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because you would have to have leaders create mandate, I guess, to... Well, I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. Well, I think there's a few basic... I'm always looking at like what's the easiest lever to flip. One is... Funding needs to be completely simplified and it needs to look so, you know, right. You know, I'm from St. Louis, which is highly segregated and no one's going to live in the poor, be a dangerous part of town because it's poor, be up and dangerous. And of course, guess what? Those people are bad. People aren't engaged and the whole just go on the list. But if funding was such that you couldn't have the white flight and that's part of why charters are problematic because, in, you know, in the case of Little Rock, I think it's there too, um, is that. People are segregating themselves, and then the schools sort of play a part of that because good schools are in this area, good bad schools are in this area, and if that continues, all we're going to be doing is tap dancing around the problem. That's the number. That's the first thing I would say. We need to change how they're funded. It shouldn't be based on property tax. That's a completely arbitrary, ridiculous measure, and it it puts kids in the victim role. They've done nothing to deserve that. And then on the policy side of things, in terms of like how charters are designed and formatted, yeah, I mean. School, you talk about school accountability. Well, a school needs to be in the bit, and you also kind of mentioned business world and business concepts. Well, I think that schools are businesses in a certain sense, but they're very different. In fact, they're 10 million times more complicated. I've talked to folks in the business community, and I've said, you know, imagine you own a hat shop where your inventory, you carry, you know, three or four different kinds of hats in different sizes and shapes and whatnot. Um, but that's it. You have limited inventory, and so what will come in, that's what you for them. Say that again. As a public school, you have to what? You have to have an infinite amount of options mm-hmm. because you have, as a public school, you're required to serve any student that comes into your doors. Mm-hmm. So if they have anything that they have going on, you have to figure out a way to serve them. And so it's, in that sense, it's way more difficult than a typical than the sort of business concept. The other piece of it is going back to that R&D. I think if you're going to hold school accountable, you need to hold them accountable to being innovative. And they need to be measured on that. And they need to be measured on how they're serving all students and not just through test scores. That's really a, you know, arbitrary measure. And that's another piece. I mean, you know, I could go on and on, but the testing industry is bigger than the NFL and it's bigger than Hollywood. Wow. So we're talking about the college board, AP classes, SAT, all that whole, you know, that whole supply chain. That's how profitable uh, it is. And now who's paying for it is kids. So we need to wipe all that off. There needs to be some way so that I think that something, there needs to be some level of standardization just so that make sure that we don't go back to, well, kids that don't have an advocate or don't have privilege or don't have people in power to make sure that they're getting a good education are going to get screwed. 
I mean, that's, I think, why standardization started happening. A school needs to be required to demonstrate how they're innovating and how they're always thinking of what's next. How would that be measured? Well, I think you need to start by uh, allocating money for it and start passing laws to say, you know, well, just look at, like, how could you in-house the charter system? And the problem is, is that, you know, a charter, one of the biggest reasons for having a charter is that you get waivers from some of the education law. The logic to me says, if my school can have a waiver from X, Y, and Z rule because it's arbitrary, then isn't it arbitrary for everybody else? But the most political piece there is that we have a waiver from licensure. And that's where people get very upset about charters because we're basically, by us saying you don't have to have a teaching license that will teach you and train you, we do have a lot of, our teachers do go through the alternative life teacher process, mostly just kind of in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, basically just kind of be a part of that system. But that's one of the biggest pieces is, you know, you have, in, to get your foot in the door in a traditional system, you have to have a teaching license. And I'll tell you, and this, you know, could be controversial or not the most politically correct thing to say, but I'm not impressed by what I see at coming out of teaching programs. And and I say that because I've, because I've met with people at these teaching teachers fairs and I've straight out of these programs. And the first thing that they tell me is what they're certified in. And what I want to know is why are they teaching? Why are they why are they called to do this insanely, you know, difficult job? What's their vision for their students? I don't need to hear about, you know, a rattle off of all the, the mechanical licenses that they have. Could you see a world that would be better if you didn't have to have a teaching license, but you were hired based on your, you know, motivation, your drive? And of course, how smart you are and how, how well you teach. But I mean, should it be loosened up a little bit? Yeah, I just think that if every state has found a way that you provide an alternative program so people don't have to have a license to, teach, to start teaching, then what does that say about the license itself? I mean, it's like saying you have to have a, teach, a driver's license to drive. But eh, I guess that that doesn't really matter if you do or not because they're not really, you know, that system doesn't really verify anything. So you can go ahead and get an alternative permit. And that's just what that is. So we need to just be, but that's so political, you know, to say, whatnot. I don't even, I just don't even like to merge into that conversation. And then it also starts because also I think, you know, largely and rightly so, teachers have felt really shunned. And if you look at big systems, and a lot of times they have, they don't have autonomy, they don't have, you know, a voice. Um, it's very hierarchical and top down. Um, you know, when the leadership changes, they're just supposed to change whatever their program. And I've talked to so many teachers that have been in the classroom for so long that they don't even listen when a new principal starts because they, they'll outlive that principal. Wow. Um, and they don't have any, but this person's the expert. They're the ones that's been there the longest. And then you see teachers just shut down. You know, and then you see teachers not care. And mm-hmm. it's, and I think that they, a lot of them start, most of them probably start really caring. But if we don't start paying teachers more, we can't be competitive. And I think sometimes, at first when I used to hear people say teachers need to get paid more, you know, I used to think because it, it would just be nice to do that. And yes, it would. I think what's more important about it is that if you, like, it's so hard to get a math and science person in Arkansas a teacher. I think like a couple of years ago, someone told me like this, that less than like 50 for the whole state math what? teachers went through the math training. I could be wrong, but I, I remember being floored. Yeah, like less than 50 oh. from the from these co- from these colleges, like some of the main colleges that produce teachers. Well, because if you have that level of knowledge and skills, you can go make six figures without all the the hardship of, of mm. you know of of running a classroom in a in a impoverished neighborhood. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we have so much work to do. I we're on could, it. We're on it. I know you are, and I appreciate it. We don't have a whole lot more time, and so I want to shift away from this. But before I do, do you have any any lessons learned, surprises? Like, what's been kind of the biggest aha or holy shit moment you've had in this future school experience? I could say it's a positive one. Um, I, you know, people have asked me like, why did you do this or whatnot, and I just said, well. I was asked to do it and the pieces lined up and it was a great opportunity for me for a lot of reasons, but I never doubted that it was supposed to happen. I mean, it just makes sense. I mean, if you're in anything, whatever, if you're a high diver or a waitress or whatever, before you are, before you're on, before, you know, it's time for you to perform, you prepare. Mm-hmm. And that's what high school should be because where are they going to do this? And we've just, it's so prolific that most of us have no, like you said, no clue. And then we start going to college and we start paying for stuff and we don't even know why we're there. Um, we rack up this debt and whatnot. So I always knew that this was like a no brainer but the fact that we tripled enrollment in less than three years um, and have been so diverse. I think that's been the thing that I'm, that I'm most proud of. And then I guess that's, you know, in terms of aha, again, I think, I guess I'll say, it's a very inspiring and encouraging aha, which is that every single one of these problems is completely solvable. Mm. Completely solvable. We have the resources. It's not a lack of resources. It's just um, how we're going to, you know, work together. Right. Lack of will, that, really. That includes the students. Students, right, right. You've done so much already in the last, you said 15 years. Um, I don't know how you fit all this in here, but uh, you're from St. Louis. Yeah. You've done a lot for children and families throughout the world. Can you sort of talk about maybe your upbringing or what, how you became interested in travel and education and all those things? Yeah. Do you know how your path was formed? The moment that I can remember, the earliest I can remember was I was in my car seat in my dad's station wagon in must have been 85-ish. We were in North City, St. Louis, which is um, to some folks that I know who work with refugees, the refugees have said that that neighborhood looks like, asked, you know, have asked when did the war end? Mm. Um, and it's largely African-American and et cetera, poor and everything else. So all that, seg- you know, segregation stuff. And I remember in this car seat at night and my dad would take us into the city um, and volunteer uh, at this homeless shelter. And he, his job was to go pick up people from the street and bring them to the shelter. And so here I am, like this little five-year-old kid in um, in the car seat. And on either side of me were older um, homeless men. And I just remember thinking, I don't understand this. Like, I don't, like mechanically, there is no judgment or bias or anything. I was just like, I don't get why, you know, and then, you know, more, more that same time period of then playing with the kids that it lived in the shelter and lived in that neighborhood. And it just never made sense to me. I was like, how are these little kids, you know, how are my friends, their houses so different? Like, I remember same time, time period, my mom befriended a woman, single mom with like five kids. And my, her daughter, Yogi, was my age. And so we were friends and we shared Cabbage Patch Kids and stuff. And I remember getting out of the car in front of her house in a rundown neighborhood. And one of the stairs was missing and there was newspaper in the windows. And I just was like, I just remember thinking like this, it just stuck out to me. It didn't make any sense. So I think my parents did one of the greatest things that any parents can do, which was to teach me that the world is my family. And that, you know, and that I don't, you know, there's, there's no, there's never justification for someone to suffer and that you can, you know, you can solve the problems. So it's always been like a problem solving mission, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's, 
that's my story. Well, what do your parents do or what did they do? So my mom got married. My, my mom was 19 when she got pregnant with my older sister. And so at that time period, as a Catholic woman, you get married. Mm-hmm. So then she sort of um, raised the four of us. And my dad was a mailman, paid, you know, put himself through college being a mailman and then got into um, medical sales. And then the whole time, you know, the whole time, this kind of the, the, the idea of service uh, was a, always a part of what was going on. So there were always, I was never, I was taught to be inclusive and, you know, not be afraid of people that were different from me. And were were they active in the church? Yeah. So they were, you know, Catholic. St. Louis is a big Catholic town. So we were Catholic. And in the 80s and whatnot, there was the whole sort of charismatic, very, I think, very social justice minded um, movement happening in, in the Catholic church. And that's, uh, that's kind of how we got our roots. Well, good for them. I'm, I'm not religious, yeah. but I like it when it's used for good. <laughs> yeah. 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 So then did you, where did you go to undergrad? Northern Arizona University. When did you first start traveling? When I was 19, I moved to Ireland. Um, I found out that for the same price I was paying to go to school in Arizona, I could go to school in Limerick, Ireland. And my family is from there, so I just wanted to go go over there. So I lived over there for a year. And that's actually where I started. Uh, I took some time off, off my classes, and I started working, teaching uh, traveling kids, Irish traveling kids, gypsies. Mm-hmm. This was sort of one of the terms. Um, and that's interesting because it comes full circle. They It was a work-study program, so they got paid... Uh, I think it was like five pounds a day to be there. And it was on a farm. And so they helped farm it and they, you know, built things in the woodworking shop to sell in town. So there was an economic piece behind it. And that's why they showed up. And then I would teach them English. Wow. That's great. So is that, is that where, well, I'm sure one of the places you get the idea that it might be incentive to pay kids to go to school. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's not, and it's not like, oh, you know, it, 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 we all feel that way. But some of us, you know, don't have as much pressure on us to think about that as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know plenty of kids who, who want for nothing. Well, they, they still right. probably like the money, though. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you did all this traveling and, and teaching. And then how did you get to Arkansas? The Clinton School of Public Service. So that's, um, I was applying to graduate school programs and I knew that, you know, I'm, a, I'm definitely, and I can identify with having learned through people and experience. So I knew the Clinton School had a crazy network internationally. So that's how I got there. Did you enjoy that experience? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, I think the Clinton School offers a lot, namely a network of people that are just all around the planet now doing cool stuff. They are. What class were you in? Seven. What year did that did you graduate? Yeah, 2013. So I did the concurrent program with the Walton Business College. So I did. I graduated like a year later, officially. Well, I think that I met you. I must have met you when I was when you were at the school, and then you were one of the mentors at the Social Entrepreneur Boot Camp. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And you weren't my mentor, but but you were there and sang Janis Joplin very well. <laughs> Oh God! You oh, can man. do it all. Um, so, so this problem-solving uh, part of your personality that fits right into the entrepreneurial bent that you also have. You do, or I guess I should just ask you: Do you see education as an entrepreneurial endeavor, or should it be? 
Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, that's the, you know, because the, the fundamentals of entrepreneurship is that you have to test your assumptions. And in order to do that, you have to humble yourself and go talk to people and, and put the understanding that you, you know, I don't know. That's one of the things that we were taught, you know, and then I've seen entrepreneurs, there's a lot of reasons why entrepreneurs don't succeed, but one of the biggest is because they just make an assumption that everyone's going to want this widget and they're going to pay this for it. And then they get out there. It's like, nope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing with, with schools, you know, how often are we asking the kids, you know, how's this working, et cetera. And it's, and it's the same, it's as simple as like a restaurant. I mean, if you have a restaurant and you never ask how the food is, you know, you're just going to wait until people leave and don't mm-hmm. show back up. Well, that's the thing about the difference with public schools that it's required by law. So there's a lot of money being spent on just forcing kids and their parents to come to school. Yes, and also I am against the the weeks where you have to dress in a different outfit every day. Oh, every time I see all my friends post pictures of their kids, it's fun. But I think of all the kids who don't have the yeah. money to put yeah. those together, and I feel so sorry for them. Yeah, true. Having been around, you know, the world and, and the country, and visiting these other schools, talking to students, is there is there an ideal that you've seen? Like, is anyone doing it right, in your opinion? Well, we are. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that goes without saying. Yeah, yeah. So we're part of the big picture learning network of schools, and there's over 100 around the world. Um, And I would say, by and large, they've got got the right idea. And that's primarily a lot of things that we need all working on, but primarily because really champions students as people, and they start from that standpoint to work out. Is the political piece of it something that you plan to tackle or are you just going to build the best school or school system that you can and let the rest get sorted out? Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm certainly interested in um, in policy work, but, um, but, but I think those things are going to work in tandem. The more evidence that we have, the more that we're changing the game around the state, you know, in Fort Smith and then around the state, wherever else, but they're going to want to listen. You know, we've got to look at this differently. It's you know, and especially when you're talking about like higher ed and K-12 being a feeder into higher ed. I mean, the whole thing is going to be looking very differently. And people, the people that are opposing that are going to, you know, just it's inevitable. So I'm definitely interested in, and you know, when I got into this project, my whole uh, goal is system change. I know that a lot of times you hear like, if I could just help one person, and I think that's very valid. But I look at it as a system. You know, yes, people are unique and individual and everything, but systems are systems. And I think the systems need to say, like, we're going to expect every kid to be, you know, an agent in their lives and then work back from that. Mm -hmm. And how else do you scale? I mean, yeah, it has to be the system. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think about running for office? I do. Yeah. 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 I, I don't have any specific plans for it currently. Do you plan to stay in Arkansas? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm spending more time at in St. Louis with my family now. Um, my dad, I'm able to work remotely. And I'm actually also building a lot of connections here with folks, um, you know, in the fundraising. I think it's important to I know that sometimes it can feel threatening to like engage outside of a community. But I think it's important because it just only creates more access and resources. Well, I hope you I hope you come back and stay in Arkansas. I mean, selfishly. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I really, I've, it took me a long time, but I've really grown to love this state and its people. And I want it to be better because I think we deserve better. So yeah. Yeah. when I, people like you or, you know, I have a sister who's off, you know, at Yale, which 
I, even if I'd had that opportunity, I probably would have never taken it. But, um, you know, I just, I want everyone to come back here. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm afraid of the brain drain. And mm-hmm. I just think there's so much opportunity in Arkansas to improve. But the same can be said for Missouri. So I think, yeah. you know, I'll be happy for whatever you do, wherever you go. But if I get a vote... Yeah. I want you to stay in Arkansas. <laughs> well, um, I'm, you know, it, it, Arkansas has been very kind to, um, you know, incubating this level of system change. So, you know, I have much to, much to be drawn there. Okay. Well, I have one last question, I think. Can you think of maybe a, a kindness or a, a hand up that someone has given you that's helped you along the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can't send enough thank you cards to Steve Clark and his wife, Jamie. They've become very close friends of mine. And, you know, he, I've learned so much from him being my mentor through this. And a lot of it's been him trusting me that I'm going to figure it out. And it's brought me the hardest part of my career with the, you know, ambiguity and the lack of, you know, someone telling me yes or no or giving me a gold star. But his trusting and really really being an innovator, I mean, years and years of sort of how a lot of us are thinking about things. Yeah, just being years and years ahead in a very humble way of seeing sort of what the future holds, something that's just uh, made my work possible. I really appreciate your time. All right, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Trish. Bye. Okay, bye. 